where do you get your your practical real world experience in how to handle other people's money? You don't. What? You don't. Okay. You get it by trial and error. It's not taught in law school. In law school, they tell us, thou shalt not steal. Well, Moses covered that. I didn't even need three years of law school for that, right? But they don't tell you practically how to do it. There are some lawyering classes that are emerging, which might help provide some of that instruction. But until it's real to you, until you have an account that you must manage, most lawyers have no training in it whatsoever. Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have a special guest, an attorney, Erwin Kramer, who among his specialties is knowledge of what is often a scary thing for lawyers, the Attorney Grievance Commission, and who's going to be presenting at the Maryland State Bar Association Summit in Ocean City in June, a presentation called Caring for Our Colleagues. Welcome to the program, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for having me, Bob. There's a lot of ground to cover. We've done enough shows that we have discussed in other capacities, the existence of the Attorney Grievance Commission and its function and that sort of thing. I'm interested that you have developed something of a specialization in dealing with them, and I wondered how that came about. Well, I have to wonder myself sometimes. It all started uh, with a client back in 1993 who was a bit of an irreverent lawyer, who was not Bar Council's favorite son, if you will, who had done something that I thought was a breach of etiquette, but not a breach of ethics. He came to me and sought representation on something totally different. I wound up sitting with him in front of the attorney grievance process back in the days when the first step to any grievance was an adversarial one. They used to have inquiry panels where you would actually try cases before several lawyers and a lay person. It's very different today, but back in 1993, I got an eye-opening experience to the idea that the attorney grievance process is not always as fair as we'd like to think it. I'm shocked to hear that. Are you really? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I predate having done some AGC work, but I kind of liked the panels with the two lawyers and the lay person, because for the most part, I was doing them in Montgomery County and Prince George's County. And it seemed like I would always know one of the lawyers. And that isn't to say that somehow that would influence their decision ultimately. But I did think that they, if they had a positive view of me, that enhanced the likelihood I would have their vote and that the lay person also might be more likely to listen sympathetically to our explanation of things. But do you think that the changes that have been made have been for the better or for worse? Well, the changes that are made for most listeners who may not be aware is that we now have what is considered to be a kinder and gentler system where you don't go into an adversarial hearing right away. Instead, you go before a panel of peers, same kind of panel as the old inquiry panels, except that it's not under oath, there isn't a record made, and they make a recommendation to the Attorney Grievance Commission, which the commission is not bound by. And candidly, their recommendations are accepted slightly more than half the time, but not always. That leaves a lot of power in the Office of Bar Counsel. And I don't think you want to vest one government official with 
an enormous amount of power over the careers and lives of the attorneys that she is required to regulate. But let me get back to the case that started it all. It's a bizarre case, but it'll give you an illustration as to why my entree into this system was such an eye-opener. My client, and I'm not telling you anything that's not public record, was a very interesting fellow by the name of Abraham Karatke. Some may remember his name. And Abe was brilliant, brilliant lawyer, still around. I don't think he's been practicing law for many years, but... He was actually in a Michael's restaurant in Timonium on Preakness night with his grown son and some of their friends, his fiance. And um, Abe, who had been divorced, was making small talk, trying to charm an attractive lady in the smoker section of Michael's back in those days. And he, as he's telling them jokes and charming the ladies at that table, his son is tying her back belt loop to a chair with a string obtained by a waiter, part of a practical joke. This guy was quite a character. And so he said, well, why do attractive women smoke? Wouldn't you like to quit? You know, and she finally said, yeah, I kind of like to quit. And he said, well, I know how to heal this. And he went into a parody of the Reverend Ernest Angley, a faith healer, placed his hand on the forehead and yelled, hey, yo, you shall no longer smoke. She then got up offended, and the chair went with her, and everybody laughed. Well, she, oh didn't, see the, she didn't see the humor in it, I can and, that. and she pressed charges for assault and battery. It actually landed in the pages of the Baltimore Sun. Michael Olesker, a columnist of the Sun, wrote a column about a suspended lawyer attacked previously, because he previously had a suspension, suspended lawyer attacking smoker in restaurant, and it was reported, misreported, that he hit her violently three times in the forehead. That wasn't the case. She also sued him for cervical injuries. He came to me wanting to sue Michael Olesker. I said, listen, there's this thing called the First Amendment. You know, I don't think we really can pass the New York Times versus Sullivan test on this. But Melvin Hirschman, bar counsel at the time, and the first bar counsel, read the Baltimore Sun articles and commenced grievance proceedings. The first panel, inquiry panel convened, dismissed the matter. They didn't think there was any cause. I mean, it was a breach of etiquette, not a breach of ethics. They didn't think there was even a need for a hearing. So he then wrote to the review board, our council did, and said, I think a stronger message needs to be sent. So they convened a new inquiry panel. In other words, if you don't like your first jury's decision, get a new jury. And that's exactly what they did. And they held a hearing. And I moved to dismiss because I didn't believe that this had anything to do with the practice of law. I certainly agree that it is not appropriate behavior for anybody, but that it wasn't a breach of the rules of professional conduct. They spent an hour convening on it as we waited outside of the conference room, brought us back in and said, Mr. Kramer, we decided to uh, deny your motion, but you don't have to put anybody on. You don't have to call any witnesses. And I said, well, I don't understand. If you're dismissing, dismiss. But if we're going to have a hearing, we're going to have a hearing and we're going to call witnesses. And we spent all day long. I remember the late Gary Straussberg, who later became a circuit court judge in Baltimore City, saying, Mr. Kramer, I don't understand. Why can't you take a hint? We told you, you don't have to put anybody on. 
Well, he couldn't take a hint. He was the lone dissenting vote in my favor. And how did I find out? I'm talking to deputy bar counsel who tried the case against me back then. Is that Glenn Grossman? No, deputy bar counsel was a guy named Bucky Williams. And um, Bucky, uh, I said, you know, it'd been weeks. And I said, I don't understand. I mean, we still haven't gotten a decision. They usually dictate that into the record after we leave. He said, oh, you lost, uh, you lost five to one. I said, really? I'm, I didn't get the mail today. He goes, oh, no, no, no. The conference reporting service always sends us copies, advanced copies of what their decisions are. And I'm like, you mean that you have a practice of getting copies in advance to the exclusion of respondents counsel? Well, I'm raising holy hell. And the same review board that sent the stronger message by convening a new jury promptly dismissed the case. That was the birth of my work in defending wow. lawyers before the Attorney Grievance Commission. So you can understand why I didn't go into it thinking that bar counsel wears the white hats and everybody else is wearing black hats. Things are not that simple in life. And certainly that's true of the attorney grievance process. I think it's gotten worse in large part because the rules have changed such that bar counsel is vested with enormous power, unfettered discretion, for example, to guide the rehabilitation of the lawyers that she prosecutes. You tell me another system where the prosecutor is in charge of the rehabilitation of the people that he or she prosecutes. I can't find one. I can't even find another disciplinary board in the country that does it this way. And it's something I've been working to change. But I've seen a number of abuses of the system. I've certainly seen situations where they've done right, but not always. And I think it's important that we as lawyers who understand our parts of the legal system and know that it doesn't always practice as it's supposed to can understand that the attorney grievance process is really no different. So could you describe for our audience what the process is and what sort of, if you will, right of appeal one would hypothetically have from a bad decision? Well, initially, the process is behind the scenes, the confidentiality that surrounds the investigation. If bar counsel, in most cases, believes that there is reason to go forward with charges, initially, what in most cases is filed is a statement of charges that initiates a peer review process. Again, it's confidential. There's nothing on the record. It's considered to be non-adversarial, although I would debate that, frankly. And then a recommendation is made. The peer review panel's requirement is to determine whether one or more rules of professional conduct have been violated, and if so, what to do about it. If not, they would recommend a dismissal. Sometimes they might recommend a dismissal with some type of warning, letter of admonition, or cautionary advice to lawyers who may have broken the rule, but probably don't need formal discipline. In other instances, they try to work out reprimands. Sometimes they'd like to work out a conditional diversion agreement, but as indicated, bar counsel has to agree and often bar counsel doesn't agree. And when, if they think you mention reprimands and conditional diversion agreements, kind of what are these? I mean, are they different gradations of, of sort of punishment or could, could you just give yeah. a, a, you know, a layperson's idea? The lowest, the lowest level of reprimand is a public sanction. And it is a letter that's issued, but 
The Attorney Grievance Commission has a website. Our council has a website. You're listed on a list of naughty lawyers that in this internet age never goes away. So someone can search for you. Your AVO profile may be affected. Your insurance rates undoubtedly will be affected. There are consequences to it, but it doesn't disrupt your ongoing practice of law, not directly anyway. Conditional diversion agreement is the ad hoc agreement that bar counsel would have to enter into in situations where maybe the lawyer's practice can be corrected. A lot of times people lose track of their trust accounts, for example. And it's not because they were stealing or something of that kind, in which case they might be disbarred. But, you know, they didn't maintain the right records and they just lost track. But that there wasn't any missing money from clients' accounts necessarily, or it was just a problem with accounting. They might teach you how to run and manage your trust account. And you might need some additional continuing legal education and things of that kind. That might be a conditional diversion agreement, but it's an agreement. There has to be agreement by bar counsel. If you think that your client can indeed be rehabilitated or spared more serious sanctions, that's lovely. But unless bar counsel agrees, you're not getting any type of diversion. That's not true in many other situations in other states, other jurisdictions that handle this. And then, of course, if the inquiry panel believes or the commission believes that something more serious than a reprimand is necessary, then there will be a recommendation for public charges. But no matter what that inquiry, or I should say peer review panel recommends, the commission can do whatever it wants. Sometimes they'll recommend a dismissal with a warning and the commission will say, no, public charges, or no, we want a reprimand. So why uh, have peer review if you can just overrule it in any manner you want? Good question. Some would say, why should we have this at all? This isn't kinder and gentler. This is another step. And by the way, lawyers can waive peer review. It's the lawyer's right. A lot of times in, in, in cases that aren't really, really egregious, you don't want to waive it because it's the one and only opportunity you really have of getting peers, other lawyers who may be empathetic, who may have been there, done that who may understand and sympathize with your situation. And you hope for a unanimous recommendation that perhaps the commission will follow. But you're right, what happens in the end isn't totally under the control of these peer review panelists who spend a lot of time reviewing these cases. So I think that there should be some degree of presumptive correctness, if you will, in their recommendations, but, but no such presumption applies under the Maryland rule. Is it your experience that if you do a peer review panel and it's unanimous that they shouldn't do anything further, that the Grievance Commission is more apt to take that recommendation, or how have you found that? I would say more apt, okay. but it's not a slam dunk. It's not like you can rest assured and breathe easy, particularly if they recommend some kind of a warning because the content of what they'd warn you about might strike one of the commissioners on the Attorney Grievance Commission as something that warrants much more than a dismissal. And sometimes that warrants a reprimand, an outright public sanction. Sometimes they may believe it warrants 
even greater sanction, and therefore they might authorize Bar Council to go ahead and file public charges. Now, public charges are filed by a petition for discipline in the Court of Appeals, which has original jurisdiction. And what the court does is they'll assign a circuit court judge to be their hearing examiner. So the circuit court judge conducts a bench trial, presides over discovery, and conducts a bench trial in order to make findings of fact and conclusions of law. At that point, after all that happens, on a rocket docket that only takes four months normally, the matter goes back to the Court of Appeals for any exceptions to those findings of fact and conclusions of law. And for exceptions the first, by either side? By either side. And for the first time, either side will argue what, if any, sanction ought be imposed. So let me digress for a moment and ask, we were talking earlier about, for example, escrow and trust account infractions, which seem to be a, a recurrent problem. And I wondered, where do lawyers learn about how to do such things? Is that something that's taught in law school? Is it something on the bar exam? Where, where do you get your, your practical real world experience in how to handle other people's money? You don't. What? You don't. Okay. You get it by trial and error. It's not taught in law school. In law school, they tell us, thou shalt not steal. Well, Moses covered that. I didn't even need three years of law school for that, right? But they don't tell you practically how to do it. There are some lawyering classes that are emerging, which might help provide some of that instruction. But until it's real to you, until you have an account that you must manage, most lawyers have no training in it whatsoever. And I will bet you that if we were to randomly audit all the trust accounts in the state of Maryland, you would find a large percentage, I believe a majority, but that's just my belief, no empirical evidence, that most of them would be out of compliance in one way or another. Most lawyers don't know that you have to do reconciliation reports every month. Many lawyers don't even know what one is. What's more is that nobody in the Office of Bar Counsel has, to my knowledge, ever had to maintain a trust account of their own. So you're- slightly ironic. Oh, absolutely. There are many states which require a certain amount of private practice experience before you can even work in these offices. Not so in Maryland. You don't need any experience at all. And there are many people who have no experience in the private practice of law prosecuting those who are. But if you worked at a large law firm, chances are you've never had to manage a trust account. There was a whole accounting department for that. So many lawyers don't have that experience. I actually recorded, produced a video for the Maryland State Bar Association, which is on their YouTube channel and also on attorneygrievances.com, which is my website, which shows you the nuts and bolts of here's what you need to do. Here are the tasks. This is what the report and the reconciliation looks like. Here's how to do it. But until that was produced, there wasn't really anything out there on it. And that's been a problem. And candidly, that's why diversion is often a good idea when it comes to a lot of innocent trust accounting mistakes, because it's not about dishonest lawyers. It's about lawyers who are trying to feel their way around an arena that they've never been trained to handle. It's astonishing to me that as much education as lawyers are required to accrue in that three years of law school, you don't get taught 
basics of things. And, you know, you kind of emerge from law school with the intellectual medal to be a lawyer, but not the practical skills. And, and I just, I, I'm surprised, like, for example, as I recall, you were a graduate of the University of Maryland Law School, and it's famous for its clinics and, and its practical thing. I'm just astonished. My wife is a grad too. I'm astonished that there isn't some requirement to help avert what is potential disaster for people's careers and for their clients. Well, I was also a law professor in my former life, and I can tell you that most academics you know, believe that teaching you about the practical side of the practice of law is a digression from the more noble scholarly approaches that they prefer. But I'll also tell you that, you know, until it's real to you, until you have this account, you know, it's really hard to train a law student for whom this is all hypothetical, none of this is real, and necessarily impart that. So some of it you could say that, that law schools could do a better job but some of this is taught by the School of Hard Knocks. Unfortunately, a lot of those knocks are doled out by the Attorney Grievance Commission. That's not where you want to learn. I feel like in law school, there should be a required course on essentially the Attorney Grievance Commission or transgressions. And in Maryland, we're governed by ethical canons and, and DRs and things. And I mean, I emerged, I went to the University of North Carolina, so I didn't go to Maryland Law School, but I emerged utterly ignorant of all these things. And I just, it seems so vitally important. Well, legal ethics is required. It is a required course. It's also tested on a multi-state professional responsibility examination that's adopted, I believe, in virtually all jurisdictions now. So you do need to know something about ethics. But real-world ethics doesn't necessarily correlate with the kinds of questions you're necessarily going to get asked on the exam. A lot of that will deal with conflicts of interest and the like, and that's very important and very useful. But what students need to understand is it's not about morality per se. It's about practical everyday aspects of lawyering. And to some degree you can train it, but to some degree you can't. The extent of my training on trust accounts are, it's not your money, don't dip into it, don't borrow from it and don't steal from it. Well. That's lovely, but it tells me nothing about how to manage one. I understand this phenomenon after 41 years of having an escrow account. So it's it's sure. tricky, kind of a tricky tightrope, I think. I don't want to use up all of our time without talking about your impending presentation, caring for our colleagues. And I wondered if you could speak to what that's generally about. Maybe we'll dip into some of it. Absolutely, Bob. And thanks for asking. Sure. Lawyers, as we know, have a higher incidence of mental illness, anxiety, depression, addictions, alcoholism, than society at large. And it's my belief that we as a profession don't do enough to care for our colleagues. We even have a rule that says we need to report our colleagues to the appropriate professional authorities when we see a violation. But there's absolutely nothing that mandates that we refer colleagues for appropriate professional help. Professional help is out there. The State Bar Association does an excellent job of its lawyer assistance programs through Lisa Kaplan and others. It's available statewide. It's free. It's confidential, but it's underutilized. And if you'll hearken back to our conversation about conditional diversion agreements, it's largely been my belief that we don't need ad hoc agreements, which are in the sole domain of our prosecutor. 
What we need are structured diversion programs that include counseling, education, training, maybe even a community service component that allows us to work off any sanction rather than reprimand me, which gives me a scarlet letter for life, but allows me to continue practicing. How about giving me an opportunity to work off that sanction to help serve the public? We're always talking about making the law more accessible to the underrepresented. We can do something about it as part of a comprehensive program of a structured diversion program. And that's part of what prompted me to write the article in the State Bar Journal, Caring for Our Colleagues, and also why we're presenting it at the Ocean City Conference coming up in June. So I'm very excited about it. I think it's important that we, for the first time, discuss this because if we can't take care of our own, how can we begin to take care of our clients? The most important thing we can do as lawyers, if we really want to protect the public, is to prevent many of the problems that harm the public. And one way we can do that is by caring for our colleagues. So is there any medical or social science research on why lawyers have such a high incidence of drug addiction, alcoholism, mental health issues, et cetera? Well, I just know of the research that they do exist and they exist with in greater numbers. It's funny, there was a recent study that said, oh, lawyers don't have any greater depression than anybody else, but they drink a heck of a lot more. I'm thinking, well, that's, thank you. That's great. So, so you don't think that that addiction is a mental illness. I mean, a lot of times lawyers, you know, we're people who are supposed to be self-sufficient. We are sometimes the last folks who are going to reach out and ask for help when we need it. I think that may have a lot to do with it, but that's not Dr. Erwin Kramer, psychologist talking. That's my anecdotal belief. I also know that a large percentage of my clients are addicts, alcoholics, have drug problems, other types of addictions. And there is nothing more self-destructive than someone in active addiction. But by the same time, recovery is a wonderful thing. And there's probably no more honorable a lawyer than someone who is an addict, but an addict in recovery, because part of their program of recovery is rigorous honesty. Uh, The bottom line is that there is so much more we can do. And what we've done instead is to sweep it under the rug or try to punish people who have a mental illness. If you have cancer, I can't punish the tumor out of you. But if you have a mental illness that perhaps accounts for some of your misconduct, Somehow we believe that we can punish you and drive it away. That doesn't usually work too well, and it certainly doesn't protect the public. If you could make any two recommendations for how to have the system work better, do you have a sense of what they would be? Yes. One would be exactly what we just spoke about, which would be a more structured program, harnessing a lot of the resources the MSBA already has to work for lawyers and help care for our colleagues and prevent a lot of these problems. Many of them are addiction, but also just a lack of business acumen causes a lot of infractions. And so we can help lawyers. We can provide a more structured mentoring system and the like. Another would be that not every disciplinary case start in the court of appeals. I know they have original jurisdiction and they have the last word, but frankly, it's very difficult for lawyers charged with misconduct to even afford 
going all the way to the state Supreme Court. Sure. And many lawyers that I speak with from other jurisdictions, because a lot of us get together and we talk shop, are astonished that every case becomes a Supreme Court case. How can you afford it? You know, most of the lawyers that are facing these problems are solo and small firm practitioners. The large firm lawyer isn't on the front lines of a lot of these issues. They don't have to maintain their own trust account, for example, and they don't face this kind of problem. So you're actually dealing with people who a lot of times are doing pro bono or low bono work and they're getting in trouble without the resources to really take care of themselves. And so they have to consent to some discipline that perhaps they don't really deserve. Those are two, pro two changes I'd love to be able to make. And I've been working in the rules committee to help foster them, but uh, with limited success, unfortunately, because if there's one thing I could change, Bob, it would be to eliminate the self-righteous snobbery of our profession that looks down upon these lawyers and says, they're bad people, they need to be excommunicated, rather than a humble approach to say, that could be me. And it could be me. I think we all I need to understand We've run out of time, but that is a fantastic ending, Erwin. And I think we can all get behind that sentiment. And I hope you're successful both through the courts and through the legislature in making things more humane with regard to how lawyers are treated when they have issues in their lives. Absolutely. We need to do it. Thank you very much, Erwin Kramer. If you could give us the web address again for your website you were talking about attorneygrievances.com. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Thank you and farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.